My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hello friends, how's it going? How's your summer slash winter treating you? I just got back from a road trip and I am still recovering from the long drive. Uh, Both the dogs are happy to be in their own beds, but they miss their dog cousins and grandma feeding them from the table when their mom isn't looking. I'm also covered, just covered with mosquito bites. Uh, We all fell victim to those biting little pests and liberally doused ourselves with insect with insect spray. My poor grandnephew, uh, he was tired of his mom spraying him down, uh, so he wanted to do it himself. And he ended up spraying himself in his face with his eyes open. Uh, don't worry, he's, he's fine. Uh, his mom thoroughly flushed out his eyes. His, his poor face was so red and puffy for the rest of the day. And the the episode caused him to miss the dinosaur museum. And he was a little bummed about that. Uh, while driving through some pretty awesome places in Montana and Idaho, uh, have you guys ever driven through Montana? It is just absolutely gorgeous. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. It, it also makes me like want to rewatch Yellowstone. Uh, but as I was doing this, I was uh, listening to all my favorite podcasts and Peter Vronsky's book, uh, American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, 1950 to 2000. And I was listening, listening to it in preparation for this episode. The situation, not the book, made me laugh. I bought and downloaded his audiobook. And then 10 minutes later, noticed I already had his book on my, on my shelf. The thing is, every so often, I go to the used bookstore, which is like my, you know, it's heaven for me. And I pick up loads of history and true crime books for reference. And I put them on the shelf, telling myself I'm going to read them later. And I guess I saw his book and thought it would come in handy for a future podcast. And it turns out I was right. Before we get too far into this episode, I think all of you have heard of the big, big news coming out of New York. Y'all, it looks like authorities finally caught the Long Island serial killer. On July 13th, New York authorities arrested 59-year-old Rex A. Howerman and charged him in the murders of three women whose bodies were found in 2010 along a parkway near Gilgo Beach. That's in Long Island. Howerman 
is also suspected in the deaths of several other women whose remains were also found in the area. You might remember that we talked about this case during last season's episode uh, about the Green River Killer and the Grim Sleeper. We, dis- we discussed the tragic fact that sex workers are high-risk victims, prime targets for serial offenders, and whose disappearances sometimes go unreported or are overlooked completely by the police. It looks like these women in Long Island might finally get the justice they deserve and whose families might finally get some answers. There's not a whole lot of information that has come out since the release of this podcast, but if history is anything to judge, I am sure more will come out in the following months. I was just watching the news today and they were excavating this idiot's backyard. If you want to know more about this case, uh, I recommend the book Lost Girls, An Unsolved American Murder by Robert Kolker, which Netflix used to make a movie. Uh, And I also recommend the documentary Unraveled, The Long Island Serial Killer, which is also good. Um, I haven't seen that lately on Amazon, so you might have to rent it or buy it somewhere. I did have an entirely different introduction written for this episode, but this news in Long Island threw my plans for a loop, which I'm totally okay with. What's so interesting about this is that when you think of serial killers, your first thought isn't of the Long Island serial killer, but monsters like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. For those of you who lived through those times, you probably remember the news stories of young women going missing in Washington or shocking news reports of body parts discovered in a Minneapolis apartment. News anchors asking you if you knew where your children were or crowds outside an Illinois prison celebrating the execution of a killer clown. If you weren't around during that time, you were probably fascinated by the Netflix series Mindhunter and the who's who of serial killers. It's not surprising that these shitbirds would be the first many people think of when they hear the word serial killers, since they hunted during what we now call the golden age of serial killers. Cases like that in Long Island, they don't occur that frequently, at least to the best of our knowledge. But it would have seemed Pretty common back in the 1970s and 80s when a shocking case was popping up every few months. And they did. Especially in California during the late 70s and early 80s when there were more than 20 serial killers on the hunt, including Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono, the Hillside Stranglers, William Bonin, the Freeway Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, Carol Bundy and Doug Clark, the Sunset Strip Killers, and Rodney Alcala, the Dating Game Killer. Just to name a few. I also find the term Golden Age kind of creepy when referring to serial killers since Golden Age generally refers to happier times. This is something Vronsky mentioned in his book, and I have to agree with him. I think of the golden age of TV or radio or Hollywood, not killers, 
But for 50 years, there was a significant increase in serial killer cases. And with the invention of television, everyone everywhere was aware of this phenomenon. Let's clear something up. Serial killers are not a recent phenomenon. If you read Vronsky's book, he talks about early man being a bunch of genocidal wackadoos. But I am not going to torture you with prehistoric tales of murder. Unless you're into that kind of thing. And if you are, not only are you strange, but you would probably enjoy the first couple of chapters of Vronsky's book. We're not here today to talk about the history of serial killers, but why there were so many of them between 1950 and 2000. According to Vronsky, there were more than 2,300 serial killers who operated in the United States alone during the golden years. In the 1980s, the peak decade for the golden age, there were more than 760 serial predators compared to the 1940s when there were just 55. So why the peak? What was it about these 50 years that drove these men? Yes, they were mostly men, though there were a few women. What drove these men into a killing frenzy? If you were to believe some current politicians, it's the fluoride or whatever in the water, or maybe a correlation between vaccines and psychosexual paraphilias. I highly doubt that. There is no one known cause to explain the uptick in serial predators in the second half of the 20th century. There is no one cause you can point your finger at and say, that's it. That's the reason why there were so many whack jobs running running around. Maybe it was the shift in societal norms. Maybe it was the shift in familial norms. Maybe it was Maybelline. A report from the FBI's behavioral unit noted that, quote, there is no single identifiable cause or factor that leads to the development of a serial killer. Rather, there are a multitude of factors that contribute to their development. Like many of my other episodes, in order to understand the phenomenon, you need to know your history. On an autumn evening in November 1957, Washara County Sheriff's deputies searched the home of a man who had been arrested for the kidnapping of a plain-filled Wisconsin hardware store owner. Deputies hoped to discover the kidnapped woman in the man's house. But what they found was the stuff of nightmares and an Alfred Hitchcock movie. In the house, deputies found the missing woman, already carved up, and the remains of other people whose body parts had been made into belts, lampshades, seat covers, furniture, and even waste paper baskets. By far, Ed Gein is not considered America's first serial killer but he was the first serial killer of a new generation of predators. While Gein represents the official start of the golden age of serial killers, he doesn't really fit into the why there were so many predators in these 50 years. Gein had some serious mental health issues that we discussed in last season's episode about criminal insanity. And he's really an aberration that can happen in any society. With that being said, 
Gein's murders and sick hobbies made national news and scandalized the nation. People everywhere were caught up with the plain-filled nightmare, and Gein inspired Hitchcock's film Psycho. Unfortunately, Gein wouldn't be the last man to catch the public's attention. There would be a lot, lot more. One of the reasons Vronsky theorized could be behind the rise of serial killers in the second half of the 20th century was World War II. World War II was the cause of many societal, economic, and political changes. Indeed, something that large and terrible would obviously change the world in different ways. Even today, we're still recovering from the fallout. Sad to say, thousands of households dealt with the fallout of war firsthand when GIs returned home suffering from what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder. Nearly a million U.S. military members saw combat during the war. Nothing in their experience at home prepared them for what they saw during the war. Many of them brought the war home with them. Of American ground combat troops deployed during World War II, an astonishing 37% were discharged and sent home as neuropsychiatric casualties. Today, we recognize PTSD as a battlefield injury, and the Department of Veteran Affairs at least acknowledges the diagnosis and tries to treat veterans who are in desperate need of mental health assistance. Back in the 1940s, veterans and their families didn't talk about it. It was actually preferable to return home missing a limb rather than being diagnosed with combat psychoneurosis. These veterans didn't receive care for their PTSD and most of the time were told to just brush it off and be a man. As a result, some took to the bottle or sought other non-healthy ways to cope with the horrors they witnessed. Many came home and remained in isolation and disconnected from their families. They were essentially absent for their sons or they became abusive and took their anger out on their wives and children. John Wayne Gacy's father, a World War I veteran, would beat young Gacy with belts and, and other objects and taunt him by calling his son a mama's boy and other homophobic slurs. Both Edmund Kemper and Dennis Rader were virtually ignored by their World War II veteran fathers, and Richard Cottingham, the torso killer, was raised by a father with combat-induced PTSD. In some cases, such as Kemper's, their mothers became either overprotective or overbearing. One theory suggests as a result that a child can become frustrated and they lash out against female figures that may remind them of their mothers. This was the case with Kemper. He killed a number of young women before realizing he really just wanted to kill his mother. And the moment he did, he called the police and surrendered, ending his entire serial killing spree. It's almost as if he self-healed in a way. He would go on to tell John Douglas and Robert Ressler all about it and help them understand predators like himself. Now, with all that being said, there are thousands 
upon thousands of people who were raised by military veteran fathers with PTSD who did not go on to become serial killers or any other kind of offender. But this is just one piece to a much larger puzzle. The early 20th century also saw the introduction, or transformation, I should say, of pulp detective and true crime novels. Pulp fiction magazines and books were publications printed on cheaper pulp paper rather than the glossy paper we're used to seeing today. In the earlier days, these magazines and novels were mostly penny dreadfuls or adventure tales or, you know, detective stories. And I know what you may be thinking. What does this have to do with the increase of serial killers? Sometimes it's the smaller things. But pulp magazines were a trigger for certain individuals. Men who would become serial killers, to be more precise. Just hear me out on this one, okay? I'm not alone. Originally, pulp magazines featured stories that you would expect. Western, sci-fi, adventure, mysteries, yada, yada, yada. The covers of these magazines were nothing really to write home about and nothing that would really shock you at the beginning. By the 1930s, however, the covers of these magazines changed and began to feature artwork of provocative and beautiful half-naked women normally tied and bound and terrorized by an assailant. The stories didn't necessarily promote violence against women, but the covers did. One magazine that featured Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hounds of Baskerville, you know, Sherlock Holmes, it featured the artwork of a scantily clad woman bound to a post with rope. Nowhere in the story does that happen, but the cover captured the imagination of some men, you know, sex sells. In this case, violence against women sold. In a time when pornography wasn't available with just a few clicks of a mouse, these Pulp Fiction magazines, the covers at least, gave men with sadomasochistic tendencies an outlet, or at least fueled their fantasies, or with younger men and boys, ignited their fantasies. I got a lot of the following information from Vronsky's Crime Read article, How the Great Depression and World War II Gave Birth to Modern Serial Killers. For men with certain predilections, true detective and men's adventure magazines were better than pulp fiction. In certain men's adventure magazines, readers could digest hundreds of tales of sadistic rape accounts, from the 1940s to the 1970s, these magazines often presented salaciously exaggerated accounts of wartime Nazi rape atrocities. The magazine covers featured garish images of bound and battered women with headlines like soft nudes for the Nazis' doctor horror, Hitler's hideous harem of agony, grisly rites of Hitler's monster flesh stripper, how the Nazis fed Tanya sex drugs, crypt in hell for Hitler's passion slaves. And as I'm, you know, saying all this, my, my apartment window's open so anybody can hear me. But anyway, these stories not only fed a burgeoning serial offender's sadomasochistic desires, 
but also some of their anti-Semitic and racist beliefs. I'm sure some of you noticed the swastika flag in Buffalo Bill's basement in The Silence of the Lambs. The Avenger magazines were known as The Sweats for the luridly colored cover illustrations of male torturers and their female victims glistening with sweat, an effect enhanced by case and paints and acrylics used by the cover artists. These magazines feature not only a gamut of Nazi and Japanese atrocities, but sweaty cannibal stories based in the South Seas and Africa, Middle East harem rape scenarios, and eventually Cold War, Korean War, and Vietnam War vice and torture themes. Parallel to the sweats was a genre of grotesque crime tabloids and true detective magazines that mixed staged bondage photos with real horrific crime scene photos and tales of sex, death, and mutilation with headlines like 39 stab wounds was all the naked stripper wore. He killed her mother, then forced her to commit unnatural sex acts. I like to see nude women lying in blood. Sex monsters, the slut hitchhiker's last ride to doom. And rape me, but don't kill me. Which all makes me want to throw up. Dennis Rader admitted at the age of 14, he had found a true detective magazine in his father's car and masturbated to the crimes of Harvey Glattman, the Lonely Hearts killer, and the crime scene photos of Glattman's female victims who had been bound and killed. Rader said that the true detective in men's adventure, men's adventure magazines had a lasting impact on him and offered him the best gratification. Aside from murder, that is. Women in these blatantly misogynistic publications were portrayed in only two biblically paraphilic ways, either as captives bound and forced into sex against their will, or as sexually aggressive, bare-shouldered women with a cigarette dangling from their lips, subject to punishment or death for their evil-minded sexuality. In this paraphilic world of the sweats, women were either sacred Madonnas, defiled, or were a whore punished. There were no other options available. In his book, Vronsky explained why Pulp Fiction, True Detective, and Men's Adventure magazines were a drug to serial killers. And this is a direct quote from his book. To most of us, the True Detective and Men's Adventure magazines all look alike. The covers show a woman in bondage. To the paraphilic serial killer, however, the literature was a stimulant for highly selective fantasies, very specific, parsed subplots that radiated out from his own imagination. It wasn't just the question of abduction and rape. There was a very narrow, self-defined specificity to it. Some serial killers would paw through hundreds of these rape scenarios until they came upon just the right one that either reflected their own fantasy script or inspired a new additional twist to it that they had not imagined on their own. In layman's terms, these magazines were crack to serial killers. And these magazines were not hidden behind the counter or sold in adult bookstores or stashed in the back of the store. They were mainstream. Some had monthly circulations of over 2 million copies at their height and were openly sold everywhere on newsstands, in grocery stores, 
candy stores, supermarkets, on drugstore magazine racks, right next to Time, Life, National Geographic, Popular Mechanics, and Ladies Home Journal. They would be found lying around anywhere and everywhere men and their sons gathered, in workshops, barbershops, auto shop waiting rooms, mail rooms, locker rooms, and factory lunch rooms. At their peak, there were over a hundred monthly adventure and true detective magazine titles available to all ages. Not only were these magazines just lying around nearly everywhere, but investigators would find them in the homes of some of America's most notorious serial killers. Post-World War II also offered something that very rarely had been offered before. More independence for women. Throughout time, women had been sheltered from the outside world. It was seen as indecent for most women, especially upper-class women, to venture out into public alone, and especially rare for women to live on their own. In most Western populations throughout history, there were pockets of single women trying to make it out on their own, but these women were considered high-risk victims and were preyed upon by predators. Even the most virtuous among them were easy pickings because society considered them unseemly because they were not married and not sheltered in the bosom of their families. It's stupid, I know. But society's outcasts were prime targets for monsters. Enter the women's liberation. In the 1950s, it became more acceptable for working women to live with other women or even on their own. By the 1960s, it was almost expectant for a young woman who did not marry to get a job and their own place. By the 1970s, it was a common occurrence. By the 1980s, a single woman would have been looked at as somewhat strange if she still lived with her parents. It became more acceptable for women to frequent bars and nightclubs, and nightclubs on their own, to travel, attend college, live in dorms or student apartments, just generally be out and about without the presence of a chaperone or a man. It was also a time of sexual liberation. Before World War II, Men were expected to sow some wild oats before they got married. Women were seen as damaged goods if they got it on outside the bonds of holy matrimony because that tiny, thin membrane is so damned important. In the 1950s, premarital sex was, it was frowned upon, but it was forgivable. In the 1960s, the pill gave women the opportunity to express their sexual desires. By the 1970s, premarital sex for women was common occurrence. And by the 1980s, a woman would once again be looked upon as prudish if she remained a virgin in her 20s. This was a time of women's liberation. And it did two things. One, made it easier for predators to obtain victims. And two, hacked off the really misogynistic predators who saw these liberated women as abhorrent and, in some cases, reminded them of their mothers. Honestly, if a man ever tells me I remind him of his mother, I'm running for the hills. No thank you, Norman Bates. 
Scores of serial killers took advantage of this new freedom. Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, targeted women in their apartments. Ted Bundy abducted lone women and girls from their residence and off the street. Randy Woodfield, the I-5 killer, targeted lone women in their cars and in parking garages. And so many more killers did the same. These men hated women and took advantage of the opportunity society gave them. The increase in the number of serial killers during the 1960s and 70s can be attributed, at least in part, to a feminist backlash enacted by men who felt emasculated by post-war America. In her book, Defending the Devil, My Story as Ted Bundy's Last Lawyer, which was written in 1994, attorney Polly Nelson wrote, it was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me. His manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments. Then there were killers like Gary Ridgway, Lonnie Franklin Jr., Richard Cottingham, who targeted sex workers because of their extreme hate for women. Ridgway believed he was doing God's work for trying to rid the world of these women, while Cottingham expressed his rage with bondage and then cut off his victims' heads. And it also should be noted that not all of these men's victims were sex workers. Women's liberation sparked these men's hate and made it easier for men to kill them. I am also fully aware that not all serial killers targeted women. Some, like Gacy and Bonin, targeted men and boys. For these assholes, they took advantage of the increased number of male hitchhikers and runaways that became commonplace in the 1970s and 80s. Young men and boys who were just looking for a ride or for a job to get them by. Another social phenomenon of the post-war years was the general crime rate started to increase and then peak during these 50 years. Throughout history, data shows when populations increase, so does crime, and there was a huge population boom after the war. Yeah, I'm talking about you, boomers. And I'm not saying boomers were inherently more violent. I'm just saying that there were a lot of them, and statistically speaking, there were more criminals among them. The first baby boomers, born in 1946, entered their crime-prone years in 1961. The ones that were born in the peak year of 1954 entered their crime-prone years in 1969. A natural conclusion is that the crime boom was an echo of the baby boom. Another natural conclusion is that among this larger group of criminals was a larger group of deviants who would become some of society's worst monsters. The following information is from a Crime Traveler article written by Becky Kotnick. Serial killings, like other forms of crime, do rise with population booms of young men, particularly those that were unwanted. Serial murder has followed the same patterns of other types of violent crime. The population of young men jumped almost 
30% in the 1960s and 43% in 1970. Stephen D. Levitt in Stephen J. Dubner's book, Freakonomics, put forth this theory brilliantly. The expansive social sciences literature, which showed that children born to parents who didn't truly want that child or weren't ready for that child, were more likely to have worse outcomes as they grew up. But also, these so-called unwanted kids would ultimately be more likely to engage in criminal behaviors. I suppose we could talk about how the lack of birth control and women being forced to keep unwanted children also impacted the rise of serial, of serial killers. But I think we already covered domineering or cold mothers, and those of you who read true crime are already well-versed in how bad moms create bad people. Nurture over nature in this case. So what was responsible for the serial killer boom? Smutty and violent literature? Dads with PTSD from the war? Independent women? A population boom? Hitchhikers and runaways? Interstates? The seemingly degradation of society? The hippie movement? Vietnam? Lead exposure? Perhaps it was all these things. Perhaps it was none of these things. Perhaps it was just a freak statistical anomaly that all these a-holes were hunting at the same time. Or maybe police work just got better and investigators were able to link and identify patterns in serial murders better than they had in the past. Is it possible that the same amount of serial killers were hunting pre-World War II, but police were not able to link victims to the same offender? It's possible, but then... How do you explain the decrease of serial offenders from 2000 to present? I borrowed the following from Cody Cottier's Discover article, Serial Killers Have Rapidly Declined Since the 1980s. There are several theories why the rate of serial killings declined since the golden age of serial killers. Better forensics is one of the top theories. Serial murder has become a more dangerous pursuit says Thomas Hargrove, a founder of the Murder Accountability Project. Because of DNA and approved forensics, and because police are now aware of the phenomenon, serial killers are more likely to be detective than they ever were. The awareness he refers to begins with late FBI agent Robert Ressler, who likely coined the term serial killer around 1980. There's a power to naming something, Hargrove said. I would also like to add better police work and intra-agency cooperation. Before, police jurisdictions did a shoddy job communicating with each other. It is possible if California jurisdictions talked to each other in the 1960s and the 1970s, police could have caught the Zodiac Killer or had linked the East Side rapist cases to the original Night Stalker cases and apprehended Joseph D'Angelo sooner. In November 2022, four students from the University of Idaho were stabbed and killed in their home. Police didn't squabble over jurisdiction, but over 130 law enforcement officers from the city, county, state, and the FBI investigated the homicides jointly 
in order to catch Brian Koberger, who is currently on trial for four counts of homicide. Without jurisdictional cooperation and the use of genetic genealogy, police may have never solved the murders, and Koberger may have gone on to kill again. Many researchers also cited longer prison sentences and the reduction in parole over the decades. If a one-time murderer remains behind bars longer, we'll have less of a chance to reach the FBI's serial threshold of two kills. Yes, it's two kills now, not three. Take Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer, for example. In 1968, Alcala kidnapped and viciously raped an eight-year-old girl. He spent 17 months in prison for the attack. Later, he would be arrested for attacking a 13-year-old girl, but only served two years in prison. Alcala is suspected of killing up to 130 people before police finally caught up to him in 1979. Today, the rape of a tender age child could send someone away for life. And maybe, just maybe, the offender would be eligible for parole after 20 years if he managed to fool a parole board that he had been rehabilitated. In prison, a serial offender doesn't have the opportunity to kill, unless he's killing his fellow inmates. Another theory suggests there are fewer serial killers because there is a smaller victim pool. People don't hitchhike much anymore. Parents keep a sharp eye on their children now. I mean, do you remember being kicked out of the house in the morning and told not to come back until dinner? Women are not forced to be polite to strangers and will fight back. And there are cameras everywhere. It's more difficult for offenders to abduct their victims without being seen. Society is also identifying so-called deviant behavior earlier and earlier. Parents don't hush up little Johnny's enjoyment of killing small animals, but rather now they get him the psychiatric care that he needs. Hopefully. I was also very surprised to read that pornography could also be the reason serial killers are on the decline because it provides a nonviolent outlet for those who have violent urges. And I don't know about this theory because that also flies in the face of the Pulp Fiction theory. But anyways, I'm sure someone somewhere did a study on it. Just the same. There are still serial killers out there who are hunting and killing victims. Across the Midwest, there's an increase of sex worker deaths that many contribute to both the opioid pandemic and, the, and serial offenders. Arizona has seen five serial killers or serial shooters in the last 20 years. And then there's the Long Island serial killer who is currently in the news. During my research, I discovered that analysts and forensic psychologists theorized we will see an increase of serial killings within the next decade due to many factors, including the severe economic slump of 2008 that caused you know, the breakup of many homes, and now the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, all that is theory and remains to be seen. What we do know is that there were a shitload 
of serial killers in the last half of the 20th century. And society had to give many of them nicknames just so we could sort them out. The Boston Strangler, the Zodiac, Son of Sam, the Torso Killer, the Freeway Killer, the I-5 Killer, the Hillside Strangler, the Killer Clown, the Night Stalker, the East Side Rapist slash the original Night Stalker slash the Golden State Killer, the Butcher Baker, BTK, the Green River Killer, the Grim Sleeper, the Atlanta Child Killer, the Campus Killer, the Coed Killer. <gasps> and these were all the ones I could name off the top of my head. And all were active during the golden age of serial killers. These men scared and fascinated the country and people were eager to read about their crimes in the paper or even watch their trials on TV. Today, these men's monstrous deeds have been turned into books, documentaries, podcasts, TV shows, and movies for our entertainment. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. As long as you remember that these monsters were real. And so were their victims. Real people died. And some of their families are still alive and continue to grieve for their lost loved ones. I ask that you please remember that the next time you binge watch the newest serial killer show on Netflix. This week, I want to bring your attention to a case I have been following since the beginning. Some of you may be aware of this case, as Brittany's mother has been advocating for her daughter on podcasts, documentaries, and at true crime events. On September 30th, 2004, after Brittany Phillips' friends and family were unable to reach her for several days, police were called to do a wellness check and discovered the 18-year-old Tulsa Community College student had been sexually assaulted and brutally murdered in her Tulsa, Oklahoma apartment in the vicinity of 65th and Mingo. Initially, police found DNA evidence at the scene, but in 2019, police told the media the DNA did not belong to the killer, but rather to the boyfriend of one of Brittany's friends who had an alibi. Brittany's mother, Dr. Maggie Zingman, has pushed the Tulsa PD to re-interview suspects who were initially ruled out because of DNA, but the police have been reluctant to do so. You may be familiar with Dr. Zingman. She drives across the United States in an SUV wrapped with her daughter's image, hoping to garner leads about Brittany's murder and other cold cases that she advocates for. Y'all, I know a lot of people from Tulsa who listen to this podcast, and I know a lot of you were living in Tulsa in 2004. If any of you know anything about Brittany's murder, no matter how insignificant you think that is, please contact the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation at 800 522 8017 or Tulsa Crime Stoppers at 918-596-2677. If you don't want to call them, that's fine. You can contact me and you can remain anonymous. I will pass your tips along to the Tulsa Police Department. You can email me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com 
or message me on Instagram at the history behind the crime. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Tulsa who do. Share Brittany's story with them. It looks like I have completely failed to put out an episode every two weeks. But as always, I will try harder in the future. I guess new episodes will come out whenever they come out. At this point in the game, I'm doing my best to keep this a completely free and ad-free podcast. But that means I have to do the researching, writing, recording, and editing all by myself. (laughs) Because I can't afford to hire anyone to do it for me. I do have another episode lined up for you. And it is a crime that brought an entire city to its knees before it rose up in solidarity against evil. Even now, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Until then, enjoy your summer, or your winter for my Aussie Kiwi listeners, and do me a favor. Take care of yourselves, and take care of each other. Later. Later.